0: Please turn with me to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, I'm going to review a little bit before we get started. Um, There's some investments that are a sure thing. I put some money into one of those once. It wasn't. I lost my entire investment. Uh, I only did that once. So Now, when I hear it 's a sure thing, or uh, you know it 's guaranteed can 't fail, brief window of opportunity, and that window of opportunity is closing you 've got to act now, act now. you know what I say? Let the window close. you know just pass me by it 's okay uh, i 've had enough experiences in life now that I confess i 'm um, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical i like to think that i 'm a, a realist i 'm probably a bit cynical, and i 'm trying to train my kids to be cynical as well. those of you. You, who know me well know I'm I'm working on that. I want them to be uh, I want to be a little bit skeptical about things. They, um, as I mentioned before, you know they'll frequently come to me and say, "Dad, Dad, we just saw something on TV. It's amazing. This thing's just the most amazing product." Then I go, "Was it on TV?" And they say, "Yeah, it was on TV." And I say, well, "They're lying." <laughs> so now I've got my son trained pretty well. He'll he'll come and say, "Dad, Dad, I just saw this thing," and then he'll go, "It was on TV." So I know they're lying. As adults, we have lived enough of life when somebody says, it's a sure thing, it's guaranteed. It's too good to be true. There's a part of us that says, ah, I don't think so. Apostle Paul tells us, it's a sure thing. God has guaranteed that in Jesus Christ, the greatest possible gift you can receive has been accomplished, it's been given, it's been provided. The removal of your debt In life that lasts forever and it's free, it's a gift to you. It's a sure thing. There's a part of us that says, oh, really? Really? What's the catch? I want to put us back in context again. Remember, we're studying the book of Romans. Those of you who are visiting with us for the first time or just kind of catching up in our series. uh, Paul began by describing the righteousness of God, which is God's absolutely perfect character. Righteousness refers to a standard. God is that standard. So all that God is and all that God does is perfect. He is righteous. And our problem is we are not righteous. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul synthesizes our problem. It says God's wrath is demonstrated against all unrighteousness of men. And then he goes through and he demonstrates that all mankind is in fact unrighteous. Immoral people, self-righteous people, even the Jew that trusts in his Jewishness. He is the light of the world. All people are unrighteous. In fact, he will summarize the whole thing by saying, there is none righteous. There is not even one. We are all equally in the same pit. But God has provided a way of escape through Jesus Christ. I want you to read with me chapter 3, verse 21. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Last week we did a bit of New Testament vocabulary, So that what God has done in Jesus Christ through the faithful work of Christ is that he has propitiated himself. That is, God has satisfied his own wrath against sin in the person of Christ. God is absolutely holy. He must hate sin. It's his nature. It's his character. And he must, because of his character, punish sin. But God has poured out a complete punishment in Jesus Christ. That is, propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath. As a result, Jesus Christ has declared us righteous or put us into right relationship with God and he has redeemed us or rescued us from slavery because Jesus Christ has paid the price for us. So what's the catch? Paul says just this. All that you must do is believe. All that you must do is believe. Now, It's interesting because faith is really a very simple concept on the one hand. Every day you exercise faith in something. You exercise faith this morning. You got in your car and you turned the key. And maybe even without thinking, you just believed it would start. For some of you college students, that may have been misplaced faith. (laughs) But you believed. and Maybe you pulled into McDonald's and you believed that they would not poison you. you. You put your order in and you ate and you weren't poisoned. You exercise faith constantly. But unfortunately, in Christian circles, we read about faith, and we talk about faith, and we confuse the concept of faith. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to focus simply on what is faith. What does it mean? And we're going to spend uh, two weeks, actually, in the end of Romans 3 through Romans chapter 4, big section, so we're going to talk about it for two weeks. This week, we're going to talk about the definition, what is faith? Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that faith must be alone For it to be actual faith, for justification or to be declared right in the sight of God, faith must be alone, mixed with nothing else. This morning, though, we're just going to talk about faith. What is faith? I want you to read with me, beginning in chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written to Abraham, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be like the stars of the heavens. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now I'm going to give you four characteristics of faith this morning. The first is this, faith is not unreasonable, but faith is beyond sight. Faith is not contrary to reason. God does not say to us, check your mind at the door. He has made us in his image, and part of being in his image is intelligence. It's mind. It's the capacity to think and reason. And so God gives us reasons for faith. I want you to turn back just a couple chapters. Romans chapter 1. Read with me in verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You remember when we went through Romans chapter 1, we said God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, demonstrate that God exists. God has, according to Psalm 19, written certain of his attributes in the skies and in creation, in the heavens and on earth. We see that God exists and that God is powerful. There is something rather than nothing. And where did it come from? There was a first cause, an uncaused cause. An uncaused agent that made all of these things happen. He is obviously intelligent and powerful. There's obviously moral order in the universe. There are things that are right and things that are wrong. And there are consequences for the things that are wrong. This is evidence that we see This should be undeniable, but some do deny it. But faith is not without reason. It's not a blind leap. Read to me here in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, Now faith is this. It is the assurance of things hoped for. Uh, The conviction or a better translation would be the evidence. The evidence of things not seen. There is evidence for our faith. Faith is not without reason. But it is beyond sight. Notice what he says here. It is conviction or evidence of things that are in fact not seen. Uh, Go back with me again. Romans chapter 4 in verse 18 it says in hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to what has been spoken so shall your descendants be without becoming weak in faith he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb notice that verse 19 he says uh, he contemplated his own body god made a promise to him and abraham said oh, really <laughs> Abraham is not a fool. Abraham was not an idiot. Abraham realized, I'm 100 years old. My wife is about 90 years old. And God has said, you're going to have a child. And from you, childless, heirless Abraham, if you look up at the stars, begin to count. You're not going to be able to count how many descendants you have. And Abraham contemplated this promise. And it was beyond anything that he had seen before. He had never seen a man who's 100, 100 years old with a wife who's 90 having children at all, let alone like the stars of the heaven. Okay? It was something far beyond what Abraham had ever seen, and yet he chose to believe. Okay? Not beyond reason because God gave him evidence, God gave him a promise, but certainly beyond sight. Notice again our phrase here, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, It's conviction or the evidence of things that are not seen. Faith moves beyond sight. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Verse 24. Romans 8 verse 24. Paul writes, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. If you do a word study on hope and faith, uh, frequently in Paul, they're just wrapped right together. They're just tied together. They're they're nearly synonymous in some places. Hope is that eager expectation for something that you do not see. Very similar to, to faith. It is confidence in God for something that I I do not, in fact, see. If I could see it, it wouldn't be faith. If I could see it, it wouldn't be hope. I'd have it in hand. And so the writers of the New Testament tell us, in fact, there will come a point in time where faith is no more. There will come a time when faith is completely irrelevant in your life. You You won't be having faith or hope in anything. Why? Because you will have it. It'll be actualized in your life. But right now, you do not have it. So... Faith is, confidence is something I, something I don't yet have. It is in the unseen realm. But it's not without evidence. Okay? That's our first point. And notice how, what he says about Abraham. He says he believed uh, hoping against hope. It's a really hard phrase to translate, but I think what he means by that, by that is this. Uh, against human hope and what people might naturally put their trust in, Instead, based upon the promises of God and God's character, he chose to believe. In hope against hope, or against hope on the basis of hope, Abraham believed. So, faith is first this. It is not unreasonable, but it is beyond sight. Second, it is not proof, but it is a conviction. Faith is not proof, but it is conviction. When we talk about faith, sometimes it's overlooked. The word faith and believe in the Bible, it's the same thing. Okay, to have faith in something or to believe in something, it's the same word group. It's from word group, uh, pistis or pistuo. Pistis is the noun, it means faith or belief. Pistuo is the verb, it means to believe. The idea is this, to consider something reliable and worthy of trust. So in the Old Testament, the concept was uh, very literally reliability. It was something that was strong and secure and reliable. The uh, pillars in the temple were called faithful. So they were strong and they were reliable. So when I believe in something, I'm putting my trust or confidence in something that I have judged to be reliable. Not without evidence, but with evidence. Based upon the evidence, I say that thing is reliable. I put my trust in that thing. Now it's interesting. The root of this word is uh, another verb, patho. Which means to persuade or to convince. Or in the passive, uh, to, to be persuaded or to be convinced. Again, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. In verse 38, Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I am convinced. Uh, I am persuaded. In this respect, uh, faith is passive. God's Spirit persuades us, God's Spirit convinces us through a variety of means. Sometimes it's the Spirit working in us, sometimes it's the evidence that we see in creation. Sometimes it's the witness of others, and we become persuaded or convinced. And so we see that thing, we evaluate it, we say it's trustworthy, it's reliable. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. So much so that I choose to rest my eternal destiny on that thing. So notice how Paul describes faith here in chapter 4, verse 21. Beginning of verse 20, he says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. God made a promise. This is the evidence. This is the data that I collect. And Abraham was fully assured, or Abraham... Uh, Became convinced. Now, I can't prove to you this morning that I was born on April 29th, 1965, but you should mark your calendars. (laughs) I can't prove it, but I could bring in witnesses, I could present documentation, I could lay out the evidence, but I can't prove it. It, Not in in an empirical sense, because it's a historical event. It's non repeatable. But I bring in evidence, and if I pile enough evidence upon you, you would say, okay, okay, I'm convinced. I believe. I can't prove to you this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred. Not in an empirical sense. I, I can't prove it. It is a historical event, it's non repeatable. So what do I do? I bring you evidence, I describe for you what the witnesses saw, I bring you documentation. It's not proof, it's validation. It's historical validation that this event actually occurred and that you should believe in it, you should trust in it. And you should entrust yourself to it. I remember when I was uh, late high school, early in college, I began to think to myself, do I really believe all of this? Or do I believe it because I was born into a Christian home? What if I had been born into another home? If I have been born into a Muslim home, or a Buddhist home, or an atheistic home, would I arrive at the same conclusion? And I stepped back for a while, and I said, you know, I need to, I need to doubt this thing. I need to examine it. And I need to see if the evidence holds up. And so I, I recognize that in Christianity, the foundation, the, the central doctrine is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection. No resurrection? Set it all aside. And so I began to examine the resurrection and the historical accounts that are given in the Gospels. And I I pushed and I pressed on them from every direction and I reached the conclusion that the most reasonable explanation is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occurred. It's the best explanation. And when I went through that entire process, where I came out in the end was a, a confidence, a persuasion I was convinced. I was convinced. And so every time Satan would attack me and raise doubts in my mind, I would go back to that same event. Say, no, I'm convinced. And I'm convinced because of these reasons. And I trust God. I trust him that he sent his son who became flesh, who died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. And that's the foundation of my faith. And I could move on. I can't prove to you that God exists. But we can have validation, we can have evidence. And the best explanation of the evidence in my mind is in fact that God does exist. And that God loves us so deeply that he was willing to send his son to become human flesh and die on the cross for us. That is to be convinced. So in this respect, it is not proof, but faith is conviction. Faith, belief, in other words, as Paul describes it, is assurance. Okay, Faith is Assurance. It's the assurance of things hoped for, it says in Hebrews, the conviction of things not seen. Since it's not proof, though, faith may also include doubts. I want you to look with me in chapter 4, verse 19 again. It says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Here's the principle. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but disbelief. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disbelief. Notice here again, verse 20. It says, "Yet With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. Uh, you should scratch that out. It should be translated, he did not, did not waver in disbelief. He did not waver so as to disbelieve. Uh, did Abraham struggle with his faith and have doubts? <laughs> Go back and read the story this week. All right? He did. Tremendously. What Paul is pointing to is Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. This event in Abraham's life where God came to him and he said, I'm going to give you a child and you're going to have descendants that are like the stars of the heavens. He thought about himself. He thought about Sarah. He thought about how unlikely this seemed to be. He'd never seen it before in all of his human experience. And yet in hope against hope, against what mankind might tell him, he chose Instead, even in the face possibly of doubts and fears and misgivings, to trust in God. I believe. And at that moment, he was declared righteous in the sight of God. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but disbelief. You may believe and you may wrestle with doubts and fears and misgivings. Sometimes that is a part of the whole faith experience. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had a, a young man come to me. He was uh, thinking about getting engaged and getting married, and it was a conversation that I've had many, many, many times. The pattern was was completely uh, in line with, with the same conversation I've had so many times. He came and he said, "You know, I'm thinking about getting engaged and I want to get married, but I got to tell you, I'm nervous. I just really, I'm fearful." You know, and I'd like to not be fearful. <laughs> I'd like to just be marching into this thing with no fears, no misgivings, you know, no doubts at all. But I have my doubts, I have my fears, my, I have my misgivings. And I said, you know, I got to tell you, if you had no fears and doubts and misgivings, I would say, you're crazy, man. You are not connected with reality because you are about to commit your life and ask somebody to commit her life to you forever. Wow. And I've talked to so many brides and grooms and say, you know, walking down the aisle and Boy, I was nervous. <laughs> I had some fears, and I said, "Yeah, sure, you should." It's a pretty big decision. It's going to affect the rest of your life. You better be convinced. You better be convinced. You know, uh, this morning I got up and I put on this shirt, and it didn't require much faith. I just put it on. Um, I didn't need a lot of data because it was the only one that was pressed. So uh, I would have needed even less data if my wife had said, wear this. But here it is. You know, I I didn't need a lot of faith. I just put it on. I made a choice. I made a decision. Didn't need a lot of convincing. I just did it. When I was starting college, I I picked a major. Picked economics. And, um, you know, I needed a little more convincing that this was a good choice, a good decision. But honestly, I didn't need an enormous amount because I knew, knew at the time that Almost every student changes their major so that I can get into this and I can get out, right? And I can get into this major and there's so much in the first couple years that transfers, I won't lose a lot of hours. So I needed more convincing that this might be close to the right path, but not a ton of convincing. Now, when I chose to go to seminary, I needed more convincing because I realized as I make this choice, there are other doors that are going to be closed. I needed more convincing. When I asked Christy to marry me, I needed a lot of convincing. Okay? Now, I will tell you, my wife hates the non-romantic way that I talk about this. Okay? But when you get married, people often say, well, you'll just know. I said, no, you will not. <laughs> you will not know. Okay? Because knowledge, in my way of thinking, requires proof. And you can't prove to yourself or anybody else, this is God's will, and I can prove it. See the formula? Right? It calculates out. It's mathematical, it's empirical, I can prove it. No, you can't. But you can line up the evidence. And if you're wise, you will line up a lot of evidence that this is a wise decision. And if the evidence is powerful and it's strong, then you will ask that person to marry you. Or you will say yes to that person that's asking. And then you will take a step of faith. (laughs) Okay? You will take a step of faith. It will not be a step with absolute certainty, with a promise or a guarantee, because things happen in life. But you have become convinced, and so you choose to trust that person and to entrust yourself to that person, and you ask that person to trust you and entrust himself or herself to you. That is a step of faith. Will it include doubts and fears and misgivings sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. So don't let Satan get you off your game when doubts and fears arise. Sometimes that's just a part of the experience of faith. Okay? So, faith is uh, not proof, but it is conviction. It is not unreasonable, but it is beyond sight. It's not mere knowledge, but it is active trust. Okay? It's not mere knowledge, but it is active trust. Look with me in chapter 4 and verse 18. Again, it says, uh, In hope against hope. Against human hope, but based upon hope in the promise of God and his character, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to what had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. It's not mere knowledge, but it is trust. Uh, In this respect, faith does require information. There is an object of faith, and you need to know about that object of faith. What did Abraham know? Well, Abraham knew God existed because he had spoken with God. Uh, He knew God was a God who made promises. He knew God was a God that was holy and righteous because there there were requirements of sacrifice when sin occurred. He knew he was a great God because he expected worship. He knew that uh, God hated sin. He saw the judgments of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knew that God specifically had made a promise to him. I'm going to bless you, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I promise. That's what Abraham knew. Maybe he knew a few other things that we're not sure of, But he knew that much, so he knew in whom he was trusting, and he knew what specific promises he had been given. Now, what do we know about God? should turn to chapter 4, verse 24. Paul says, for our sake also this was written, that faith was credited as righteousness, to whom we also will have faith credited as righteousness. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Okay, We know more than Abraham knew, don't we? Okay, Abraham had a promise. It was, it was a little bit more narrow. We know, in fact, now that there's a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that the second person came, took on human flesh, died on a cross, and was raised from the dead, and that there's salvation in no one else. We have more information than Abraham had. But faith requires information. And sometimes we're tempted to put our faith, our confidence, in something that is not worthy of our trust because we lack information or we have wrong information. Several years ago, Charles Ryrie made this statement. He said, The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. What he means by that is, Even before Christ, God was going to make a sacrifice that would be perfect and remove all sin, and that sacrifice is Christ. God knew it, whether people knew it or not. The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. Abraham is a paradigm. We'll talk about that a little more next week. It's always, you are declared righteous through faith. It's always been that way, Old Testament, New Testament. The object of faith in every age is God. The content of faith changes in various ages, but the way in which we are saved does not. But God does progressively reveal more and more and more about himself. So, faith requires information, but faith is not information alone. It's not information alone. There are many people, especially in the United States, that know the facts of the gospel, but don't trust Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I learned that the guy who was uh, president of Emory Seminary was actually an atheist. Which I thought, man, that's crazy. I don't understand that a bit. But from his perspective, the study of theology was basically a study in sociology. That is, what are the needs in people that cause them to reach out and create a divine being? Yeah, but he was an atheist. He probably could articulate the facts of the gospel as well as any of us. It's not information alone, but information is required. Instead, it is trust. Okay? Faith is... Is trust. Okay, I, I've never been able to come up with a better illustration of this, so I'm gonna use the chair again. Okay? This is my illustration of trust. Okay, my friend Randy here is sitting here on the front row, and, and generally speaking, Randy's a reliable guy. Okay. <laughs> Randy's never lied to me, as far as I know. He's always kind of pointed me in the right direction. He doesn't typically lead people astray, got a good reputation in the community. People trust him, he's trustworthy, and Randy has told me, he said, you know, Brian, I tested that chair, it can hold you up, if you put your weight upon it, it'll hold you up. Well, you know, I, I do trust Randy, and I, his character is solid and consistent, but I'm checking check it out for myself, you know, I'm going to look at it, okay, you know, all the screws are still in place, mostly, you know, might need to tighten that one up, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think it'll hold me up, I've, I've tested, I've looked, um, I believe, I believe you, Randy, have I exercised faith? Not yet. Okay. okay. Now I believe. Okay. I have put my trust in this thing. Am I saved by faith? No. What's holding me off the ground from collapsing onto the ground? The chair. Not faith. Okay. Faith does not save you. Okay. Lock that in your mind. Faith does not save you. The object of your faith saves you. So your faith needs to be in the right object. The object of my faith is holding me off of the ground. The chair saves me because the chair is reliable. Okay? So what we are trusting in is not that we are people of great faith. Or that we're people of faith that never has doubts. We are trusting in this object that is reliable and that is God. Okay? The object of faith is always God. And God is reliable. Whether or not our faith ebbs and flows. And the moment that we exercise that initial act of faith, we are declared righteous and we're put in right relationship with God. That's what it means to believe. Okay? That's what it means to believe. So, faith is not unreasonable, but it is beyond sight. It is not proof, but it is conviction. It's not mere knowledge, it is trust. It is not surrender but it is receiving. It is not surrender, but it is receiving. It's not about what I give to God. It's what God has done for me. Clearest illustration of this is John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God what does he mean by receiving? Even to those who believe in his name, to believe is to receive. It's to reach out and say, God, thank you. I accept what you have done for me. So if I ask you your testimony and you say to me, well, you know, one day I was listening to an evangelist. I was listening to a pastor and he said, give your life to Jesus. My head will explode. And I apologize right now, but it's gonna, I'm just going to explode. That, that makes me crazy. I've heard, pastors and evangelists for years and years and years say give your life to christ give your life to jesus when did you give your life to christ you know what salvation is not about giving your life to christ if you gave your life to christ at some point hey that's absolutely wonderful my question is when did you receive something from christ right to be declared right in the sight of god is about i say god thank you for what you have done for me not what i have done for you so faith is not surrender it's not commitment, it's not a promise that you make because you know what, you will go back on your promises, you will fail in your commitments, you won't surrender all, even though you sing it, I surrender all or most, no, you won't, okay? It's just, you, there are things you don't even know that you're holding back. So it is not about what you give to God, it's not about giving your life to Christ, it's about what Christ gives to you, Clear? Great uh, quote, P.T. Forsyth wrote, said the prime doer in Christ's cross was God. Christ was God reconciling. He was God doing the very best for man and not man doing his very best for God. God does not need your best in justification. You need his best, which is Christ. Okay? Very humbling. Completely true. Faith is not surrender, it's not commitment, it's not a promise. It's receiving a gift. So, faith is this, not unreasonable, but it's beyond sight. It's not proof, it is conviction. I am convinced. It is not mere knowledge, it is trust, it's active trust. It is not surrender, it is receiving. Now, what happens the moment that I believe? What is the result of faith? I want you to turn back chapter 4 and verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. The moment that you do believe, uh, God does a reckoning. And, and, and Paul says he, he credits righteousness. This word for crediting or, or reckoning is used 11 times in Romans chapter 4. One single verb is used 11 times in Romans chapter 4. It's, this is central to Paul's theological argument here. It's an accounting term. And the image that would have come to their mind would be a a ledger sheet, and you'd have um, assets and liabilities in your columns, right? To credit means to post something to one of those columns. It's a reckoning or a crediting. Before we knew Jesus Christ, uh, there were a a lot of debts. (laughs) We had a lot of liabilities. The sheet was full. And over here on assets, it was empty. Isaiah tells us uh, even our most righteous deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of God. Why? Because we're doing those for our own credit, before knowing Christ, before trusting what God gives us first. So we have lots of debts, lots of liabilities, no assets whatsoever. The moment that we trust Jesus Christ, all the debts are wiped clean, all of them. Even the ones you haven't committed yet, they're they're all wiped clean. They don't stand as a barrier to your relationship with God. And instead, in the other column, in your assets, God stamps righteous or in right relationship with me. Now, notice, righteousness is not a thing that God gives you. Righteousness is a status that he declares is true of you. So, he's not importing into your life the character and virtue of Christ He is importing into your life the stamp that says, righteous in Christ. I see you in Christ, so now you are in right standing with me. Debt's removed. You're right with me. It's a final decision. God, the great accountant, doesn't cook the books, right? It's not not fictitious. He's not saying, well, you know, let me just pretend that the debt is removed. No, the debt is removed because you believed in Jesus Christ. And the moment that happens, it's gone. Forever. It's gone. Boom. That's it. Okay? Okay? Righteous in Christ. And that status cannot be rescinded. You can't give it back, and God won't take it back. It's a once and for all declaration. In fact, the word here is legizomai. It comes from uh, the Greek words logos, uh, which is word or lego to speak. The idea is, it is literally God speaking a word over you, and that word is righteous. In right relationship with me the moment that you believe yeah. second thing that happens is uh, God builds more faith God builds more faith look at me in chapter 4 and verse 20 it says yet with respect to the promise of God Abraham did not waver so as to disbelieve but he grew strong in faith giving glory to God now again The moment that you believe, you are declared right. In that respect, uh, faith occurs in in a moment of time. But it also occurs over a lifetime. Faith is an event, but faith is also a process. Now, People confuse James 2 and Romans 4 because they don't understand that Paul is primarily concerned with the event of faith by which you're declared righteous. James is talking about the process of faith by which you grow in righteousness, right? Paul is primarily concerned with our righteous status in the sight of God. James is concerned with righteousness in the sight of others. So the practice and the maturity of our faith. Now, I can't go into all of James 2 here because we have four minutes left. (laughs) So if you wonder, how do you reconcile James 2 and Romans 4? I did a sermon several years ago on James chapter 2. Get online and go through that. The point is simply this. Paul is concerned about good works and he's concerned about the growth and the exercise of faith but he's not going to start that discussion until Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5 through 8 he's going to talk about how our really good works actually produced in us as we walk in faith trusting God to produce these good works through us but right now what Paul is focused upon is that event or that moment of faith by which a person is declared righteous. And forever sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of final redemption. So your application point this morning is if you have never experienced that moment of faith, I'd encourage you this morning, call out to God and say, I believe. If you're convinced. If you're convinced that it's true, that God really did send his son and that he died on the cross and was raised for you. If you're not convinced yet, uh, let me encourage you, grab a hold of a book like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Really good book. Very readable book. Um, read through that and don't put it down until you're convinced one way or the other. It's all pack of lies or this is the absolute truth. Okay? Allow God's Spirit to convince you. There is nothing more important in your life than to know is the gospel of Christ really true or is it false. Allow yourself to be convinced if you are not yet convinced. If you're believing in Christ, what you're going to notice here as we move through Romans is Really what Paul is talking about in the whole book is that there's a a faith way to approach God and then there's our own way. The faith way is that I'm constantly trusting in God for justification, to put me in right relationship, to transform me and make me more like Christ practically in my life, to to heal my relationships and the way that I interact with other believers and with the world. And what I would challenge you believers to do this week is uh, work with me. Okay, Work with me. I want you to read uh, Romans 4 through 8 this week. Take you maybe five minutes just to read Romans 4 through 8 and begin to take some notes. What does it look like to live life God's way, the, the faith way, as opposed to my own way? Okay? This morning we have assurance, or we can. That is the conviction of things hoped for. I know it. I may not see it, but there's evidence. And I look around me and I say, the most reasonable explanation for all that is, and the most reasonable explanation for the accounts of the resurrection, is that it actually occurred. I believe. I believe. And the longer I walk with God and the more evidence that I allow Him to pour into my life, the more confident I grow in my conviction. That is, my faith is stronger, and so when trials and frustrations, tribulations come my way, it's harder and harder for them to rattle me because I believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. You have not left us in the dark, and you have not left us without evidence. But I also thank you, Father, that you call us to take a step of faith, to trust you, to trust what you say about yourself, to trust what you have done in history, that you are reliable. Father, I thank you that you are reliable, that you are true. This morning we renew our faith in you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.